All right. Thank you, Faith. We're going to now open up our Bible. So if you have a Bible, open up your Bible to Luke chapter 10. Uh, We're now switching series. We kind of title our series based on the structure of the book. So the Gospel of Luke has kind of different key sections. Uh, So we just finished the section of the first followers of Jesus where it was really focusing in on him, beginning to amaze and call those first followers uh, in chapters 4 through 9. Now, chapters 10 through 18, we talked about this in 9. We saw this kind of key verse that said, he's set his face to Jerusalem, right? And in context, what is setting his face to Jerusalem? Well, Jesus is setting his face to his death and resurrection on our behalf, to the new exodus, as it was described uh, earlier in Luke. So Jesus is going to accomplish our new exodus in Jerusalem, and everything he's going to do now in chapters 10 through 18 are going to be ways that he's got his face set on his death and resurrection, and in the process, Jesus confronts our spiritual immaturity and the legalism of the religious people of that day. And so these are messages that we need to hear as well. We have the same issues that they had in that day and age. So again and again, Jesus is fixated on his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. He's moving towards that end at the end of the book of Luke, and he's going to confront immaturity. He's going to confront legalism. So this week, opening salvo is about legalism. So if you'll turn to Luke 10, 25, it's legalism versus love. Legalism versus love, and it can be found... Uh, on page 869, I think it is, in the Black Bibles. If you want to grab one of those Bibles, turn to 868, 869. It's Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Legalism versus love. Legalism is doing works of the law to earn God's favor. It's the simplest definition. Doing works of the law to earn God's favor. That's legalism, law-keeping, legality, um, versus love. Jesus calls us to love God because God first loved us. First John 4:19. we love because he first loved us. And there's going to be a conflict that we're going to see more and more. It's going to heat up over several chapters. This story is often referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Very famous story. You've heard it a million times. I'm going to try to like come in sideways, uh, sneak attack, and teach it to you in a way you haven't heard before. Hopefully that'll work. But the idea here is legalism versus love. That's the contrast. And we can all fall into legalism. We can all fall into that, into thinking that we're keeping some rule that makes God owe us, right? Let me give you a little story from my own background. I'd taught that legalism was wrong, preached it for years. I've been teaching the Bible uh, for 30 years now, for a long time, right? And so when we planted this church, I knew how to make that distinction. I knew how to teach the difference between being saved by God's free grace and then loving others freely because we've received his free grace, and the distinction between that and actually legalism, where we're keeping some rule to impress God. And we were about six weeks into the beginning of the church plant. Um, Hardest thing I'd ever done, trying to get the momentum, you know, like trying to push this boulder uphill of getting this church going. We had a great team. It wasn't just me, but I was the one that was probably worrying about it the most late at night, right? As kind of the key leader, I'm, I'm just like praying about it, thinking about it, you know, working long hours, About six weeks in, I collapse one night in bed with my wife after having a lot of weird and difficult conversations with leaders at the church on the phone. Um, There'd just been a lot of critique about this problem and that problem and things that needed to be fixed. And I was just so worn out by it. And I remember just flopping into bed and I was just kind of mad and huffy about it, you know? And I was just like, I've been working harder than I've ever worked in my life and people still are not happy. And as soon as I said it, I was like, wait, that's not actually my job, right? 
Like my job is not to make people happy, uh, but the, own, the bent of my personality, right, the twist in my own soul is to substitute this law of making people happy. Like my justification is found in making people happy. You might try to serve the law of, you know what, my justification is in meeting the law of absolute financial security. And I'm serving that law. If I can just be financially secure, then I'll be justified, then I'll be okay. Or it might be relational security. If I have just the right relationship, if I can serve that law and complete that law, then I will be saved. I don't know what it is with you, but we can all drift into different forms of legalism. The whole book of Galatians clarifies that legalism and even rebellion, indulgence, are both forms of self-salvation. They're both forms of self-salvation. Those of you that are trying to be really good religious people and those of you that are trying to be wild and party and just have fun, you're both still just fulfilling this law of thinking you'll be saved by this external Savior out there besides Jesus. It's often called the flesh. You can't be saved by the flesh. You can't save yourself. You need Jesus to save you. And that's really what this parable is about. That's what this parable is about, is, is showing the difference be trying to, by, by trying to meet this law, or this, this legal code over here versus letting Jesus save you. And so I want you to be thinking about, man, what are, what are the ways I've tried to save myself? We all do it in different ways. Even those of us that know Jesus, we know that we're saved by him, can drift into thinking, oh, I, I might impress him more if I do this, right? He might love me more if I do this other thing. And I just want to reassure you that you cannot be loved more than being given Jesus himself. That is perfect, absolute love that God offers to you. Don't reject that for something else, some other law, some other legal code. So here's the story. It's Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer, a law expert, a legal expert, a lawyer, stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Uh, famous story, incredibly famous story. It's come to now be an emblem of love, of mercy, right? Um, if you Google this, one of the most common places you'll find 
Good Samaritan is in news reports. Basically, anytime somebody does some kind of gracious, merciful thing, they're called a Good Samaritan, right? So this has become a really important story in our culture. And we want to try to kind of work backwards and say, well, well, how did it get to be that important? What was the original intent of the story? What's the context of the story here in Luke? What is Jesus trying to say here? Um, I'm going to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand um, that I'd be clear, that the text would be clear, that we just kind of see what Jesus is trying to say to us this morning. So let's pray. God, we ask that you would be with us by your Spirit, um, that you teach us, uh, that your Spirit would uh, open our eyes to our own neediness before you, and your Spirit would also open our eyes to the, the greatness that you offer us in yourself. We thank you that you loved us first, Lord. We pray that we would be a people that love because you first loved us. Help us not to be a people that try to, to deal with you on legal terms, uh, but we accept that it is finished, that you fulfilled all of those legal terms for us in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we move through the text, I want to focus on the lawyer, the legal expert. This would have been a not lawyer in the traditional sense that we use the term, but a expert in biblical law. So we've been like a PhD in theology, an expert in biblical law, biblical requirements, what God had directed his people to do uh, in many ways, like a theology professor. Um, But because of what Jesus is pointing out, I'm going to call him a legalist. A legalist, again, a legalist is one who believes that their relationship with God is bound up in fulfilling legal requirements and fulfilling a code. And as I said, even if you're not obsessed with Jewish law, we all can fall into fulfilling this code of like relational security or making people happy or having a lot of money or being respected, right? There are all kinds of false saviors of I'm, I'm fulfilling these actions. I'm doing these works with my flesh that will save me. We can all fall in to this in different ways. So we're all legalists at different times. So in this process of unfolding the story, we're going to see the legalist's equation, number one, kind of the equation he starts with of how you relate to God, the legalist equation. Number two, we're going to see the legalist's heart, the legalist's heart, what's really going on there and how Jesus kind of pursues his heart. And then number three, we're going to see the legalist's burden, the legalist's burden, the demands placed on him. So number one, the legalist's equation. We see this in chapter 10, verse 25, the legalist's equation, two parts to one verse, and they're both very important. So we're just looking at one verse here, and then we're going to look at a a lot more verses in the next section. But in verse 25, it says, and behold, a lawyer or a law expert stood up to put him to the test. Now this phrasing of putting to the test is almost always used negatively. There are some times when testing someone, God can test us sometimes positively, like wanting to see us cling to him and trust to him, uh, trust him. But Generally, this is a negative term, and in context here, we know it's negative because the Jewish leaders, the experts in the law, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, these guys were constantly testing Jesus and trying to trip him up. They're trying to trap him. So the legalist's equation, number one, we have to recognize is a test. It's a trap. Our assistant pastor, Joey Colon, likes to use this phrase a lot from Return of the Jedi, it's a trap. I don't know if y'all know that line. It's a big fish-faced guy, right? They've brought their whole fleet in to, to fight this fight, and all of a sudden they've been ambushed. It's a trap, right? Like, this is, we see this coming. Like, oh no, Jesus, it's a trap. Cool thing? Sees Jesus. He's just not phased by it at all, right? Like, Jesus is going to be fine. Don't worry, okay? 
Jesus is okay. He can work his way out of this trap. But it helps us to know where it's coming from, right? Uh, because again, a lot, a lot of us, we want to do what's right, right? We want to do what's right. So it's, it's hard for us to see Jesus critique religious people that want to do what's right. One thing that I've noticed over the years in my ministry is some of the most aggressive people, uh, some of the most hateful people can be the legalists. The legalists who like on one hand are trying desperately to do what's right, all of a sudden like turn on you and bear their claws, right? Because part of that system, part of that equation of saving yourself by doing what's right is often having to tear down other people so you can move to the head of the class. If you're not, if you're not just receiving grace, from God, but you're in the system where you have to beat out others and have a better grade than them to be blessed by God, that makes you dangerous because you've got to crush other people to make it to God. But that's not the system that Jesus is dealing here. So this equation is a trap, and we see number two that this equation is just wrong in how it's worded, right? Look at the second phrase, teacher. Where is it? Verse 25, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's like at service level, it's just like, ah, this is a perfect question. Like I wish my non-Christian friend would ask me, how must I be saved, right? We can say, ah, trust Jesus, easy, done. But because it's a trap, it makes us a little skeptical and we notice the details of what he's saying. He's saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? So we're going to be a little more critical of him. What must I do to inherit eternal life. And we recognize, like I say, we, we all slip into that. We all slip into thinking, even those of us that have trusted Jesus can slip back into like, I got to do more to win more of his love. Even though we know nothing can make us more loved than already having Jesus. Like that's ultimate love right there. You cannot do anything to inherit eternal life. Does that make sense? You can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is really clear about this. We can't do anything because if we could, then we could boast about it. God doesn't want us to boast. God wants us to trust him and glorify him instead of glorifying ourselves and our flesh and our law keeping. So we trust in his grace. And then he's got stuff for us to do after we've trusted in his grace. So we are to do things. We're just not to do things to inherit eternal life. Do you see the, the distinction there? We receive grace. We trust. We have faith and inherit eternal life by faith. And then because that changes us, then we actually want to love people. Then we actually want to do good things after that. So one of the most helpful verses to help us remember that you can't do any works to inherit eternal life, but you have to have faith, trust, is Galatians 2.16. Galatians 2.16, you might want to write this one down. It's got this beautiful repetition. Just listen for the repetition. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have faith in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Did you hear that? That was like three, maybe four repetitions. I started to lose track there a little bit. So what's he saying? You can't be justified by doing. You can only be justified by trusting, by faith, believing. Receiving Jesus. That's how you can be justified. Justified means made righteous. So here's what this looks like. If you trust Jesus, when God looks at you, he's perfectly pleased with you. You're his son. You're his daughter. He sees you as beautiful and as perfect as his son, Jesus Christ. That's mind-blowing. 
That's what changes us into wanting to do what he says. But if we're trying to do what he says to win his love, we, we never get there. We've got to steal, kill, and destroy and push people out of the way to get that love, and we never get it. But if we tr- trust him, if we open our hands by faith in Jesus Christ, then we can be justified. So application number one question is, are you setting a trap for Jesus as well? Are you coming at him skeptical, trying to trip him up? Like, this is too good to be true. You're up to something, Jesus. I can't trust you. Are you trying to trip up Jesus? Are you trying to beat Jesus at what he's doing? Or have you come to Jesus to learn and receive? And then the second application is, do you approach uh, religion like this legalist does, thinking you can do to earn eternal life? I have a little rhyme I thought might be helpful I don't like to rhyme too much. It feels cheesy to me. But I think this one's helpful. Are you a learner or an earner? Have you come to learn from Jesus? Or are you trying to earn? And like, Jesus, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished for you. Do you love me yet? If you trust him, he loves you. You, you can know right now he loves you. He's forgiven you. He accepts you in Christ by faith. That's the legalist's equation. Okay, second point, we see the legalist's heart. The legalist's heart, this is really cool. Jesus aims for the heart. Um, and like I said, some of the most difficult people I've worked with over the years can be legalistic, can be self-righteous. These are hard people to work with. Um, it never comes out, you know, I said they put their claws out. It's never like actual violence. I just mean kind of like emotional violence, right? Like these are just the people that I have red flags. I'm just like a little nervous. And here we see Jesus just walking into the trap and like being unfazed by it. Like, yeah, I'll get into the mud with you. Like, this is, this is fine. We'll have a conversation. He cares about this guy's heart. It's so beautiful. Like when I'm approached with these kinds of trapping questions, you know what I want to do? I want to like intellectually like slam people, right? I want to like put them in the intellectual body slam. Like, well, I'll show you how much I know. I'm so much smarter than you, <laughs> right? That's not what Jesus does. He, he's, he's uncovering this guy's heart. I grabbed a picture of a doctor with a stethoscope. That's what a good doctor does, right? He listens to our insides. He asks us questions. Then he asks more questions. And he measures things and he scans things. And he's like, yeah, but what's really going on, right? He, he, he cares about what's going on inside of us. Jesus cares for the heart. A, a book that I've loved, I think I brought it up here, yeah. A book that I loved is called Learning Evangelism from Jesus by Jerem Bars. He's one of my professors in school. Learning Evangelism from Jesus just kind of walks through different conversations that Jesus has with different people. One of the things he really emphasizes is how Jesus aims at the heart when he has conversations with people. And we'll see this again and again in different places in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, But these are three things that Jerem uh, points out. He says, uh, Jesus does this, and this is something we can do when we talk to people as well. Uh, Jesus aims for the heart by asking instead of telling. Asking instead of telling. Number two, Jesus aims for the heart by focusing on action, concrete reality, rather than just theory and philosophy. Like real stuff that matters. And then finally, we can aim for the heart like Jesus aims for the heart by engaging the imagination. The imagination is a beautiful side door that we can enter into. Jesus tells parables often to do that. He appeals to people's emotions. Uh, He kind of tells it slant is the way some people talk about art. It kind of comes in the side door. It's not just straight argumentation, but it kind of opens us up to different directions. Now, uh, we can't just make up parables that get included in the Bible, just to be clear, right? 
Jesus gets to do that. We don't get to do that, but we just see how he tells stories and uses imagination to unlock some of these closed doors to the heart. So he goes into the story here, verse 26. Jesus, first of all, asks without telling. He's talking to an expert. He wants to hear what the expert has to say. So in verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He asks the guy a question. Have y'all ever noticed how often Jesus does this? Again and again, he asks questions first. He might get around to some telling later, but he always asks questions first. This is a beautiful habit. Uh, my mentor, uh, Jaron Bars, he wasn't like a close mentor, but Professor Jaron Bars was mentored by Francis Schaeffer, who said this famous quote that I've used a million times, but I think it's helpful, is if you have one hour with someone to explain the good news of Jesus, spend 55 minutes asking questions. Spend 55 minutes asking questions. You only need five minutes to share the good news, but after you've asked questions for 55 minutes, you can speak in a language that makes sense to that person. You can understand their heart a little bit better as you share the hope of Jesus with them. So we see Jesus doing that. He leads with a question. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Verse 27, and this guy answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Like, this should be the A-plus answer, right? So again, in legality, uh, you know, if, if it's just a multiple-choice test, this guy got, got the A-plus, right? Jesus has said elsewhere that this is the summary of the law. This guy's giving a beautiful answer, but Jesus is, is digging and searching for his heart. He's like, yeah, but, but what else is in there, right? Do you think you've done that? Do you think you've actually loved God perfectly? and loved people perfectly? Like, do you really think you've done that? That's, that's a simple standard. Yeah, just love everybody perfectly all the time. Bingo. And so there's this hypothetical idea that theologians talk about a lot, that it is possible for someone to be so good that they can be saved on their own, right? This hypothetical concept of righteousness, you can be saved by doing the works of the law. And yet we read in Galatians like, but no one's done that, Right? Jesus is the only one that's done that. So when we approach Jesus by faith, what we're saying is like, well, yeah, you kept the law, but I haven't. (laughs) None of us have kept the law perfectly. None of us have done everything that we are made to do. And so we throw ourselves on the mercy of a Jesus who has perfectly kept the law, who has done everything right for us, who has actually loved God and loved man completely. So this guy gives the right answer. And Jesus says this, verse 28, he said to him, You've answered correctly. Good job. And he says, do this and you'll live. He's like, all right, see you later. You got it. You don't need me. When Jesus walks away and says, you don't need me, that's a very dangerous place to be in. But he, verse 29, couldn't let it go. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's trying to clarify Okay, Jesus, just to be clear, are you asking me to, to just love the person on the left and the right? Or do I have to love the person across the street as well? Or do I have to love the whole block? Like, like how many houses of people do I have to love, right? So Jesus tells the story. Here's the answer. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Immediately, if they're hearing the story, engaging the imagination, they would have been like, oh, right? This is dark alley language. This is like creepy part of town where people get murdered language, okay? 
Um, I've actually been to Jericho. It was kind of scary. But the road specifically from Jerusalem to Jericho, there were like a lot of narrow passes, a lot of places people could hide. It's a desert road. It was dangerous. People got hurt all the time. It's like this, this is a place where people get beat up. So let's see what happens. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. They're like, yep, see, that's what happens. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, now by chance, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So instead of loving this beat up half dead person, the priest, whose entire vocation is to serve people and to reveal God's character to them, said, you know what? I'd rather stay uh, ceremonially clean according to the legal requirements of the law so I'm going to pass by on the other side. And by chance, somebody else. Verse 32, so likewise, a Levite, his vocation also, they were the assistants to the priest. His vocation is also to help people, to represent God's character to people. And instead of loving this guy, he also came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. So the two people whose job it was to represent God's love and justice to the world said, yeah, I, I think I need to keep myself legally clean here and not get entangled in the mess. And they walked away from the difficulty and the pain. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Now this is a big but here. Um, Samaritans were both religiously and ethnically seen as other to the Jews. Uh, This would have been like terrorists, cult members. These are the bad guys. They're always the bad guys. They're at war. We've talked about this. They've they've come up several times in the Gospel of Luke. So, and we've said, um, it's not right that the Jews would mix in racism and tribalism with their adherence to the faith, but it happened. And it happened again and again. So we just have to acknowledge that was was a culture. The Bible never taught that. The Bible never taught people to be racist, but they were racist towards the Samaritans. And so we've got this issue here. And immediately they're like, oh, this is a bad guy. What's going to happen? He's probably going to beat him up more, right? Like that's, that's what they're thinking. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. Who else keeps having compassion in the Gospels? Jesus. He had love. He was moved towards this hurt guy and his compassion and his love. So the Samaritan, the bad guy, just... I just want you to like close your eyes for a minute and like think of who's the one person that if you saw them coming, you'd be like, oh no, they're not here to help me. They're here to hurt me. Can you think of that? Like, imagine, don't say it out loud, right? Because you'll probably insult people that are close to you. (laughs) But that's what Jesus is doing here. As he's uncovering this guy's heart, he's like, I'm going to use the one guy that I know no one would expect to be the uh, emissary of love, the, the man of compassion. And he's going to be the one that has real compassion and real love. Verse 34, he went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. That's two days wages, basically. He gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. So he's giving him way more money than he needs to. And he's offering to come back and give even more money. He's setting him up for success. He's spending his own time. He's, he's stepping into danger. This is a risky situation. It's a dangerous place, and he's getting more involved in a messy situation, right? But in every way, he's taking risks 
to love this man and show him tangible compassion. So says, take care of him. Whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Jesus is coming in the side door with the story of imagination. He's uncovering this guy's heart. He's caring about this guy's heart. He's not just walking away and leaving him where he is, but he's engaging him. Talking with people about the good news of Jesus is, is slow and messy. It's not quick and easy. It takes care. Jesus is really engaging him. He's telling stories. He's asking him questions. He's paying attention to this guy's heart. So a question for us is, how do we show love to people's actual heart? Do we just engage them philosophically? Um, do we just kind of keep the debate up here? Like, yeah, let's just debate and I'll show you how wrong you are and how stupid you are. You're, you're part of the wrong group. Or do we actually like listen and pay attention to their struggles, to their cares? Do we show people the dignity of honoring that every person is created in the image of God and we owe them dignity? God gives them dignity, so we should too. And that means we should listen and take their concerns seriously. Um, I want to give you an example of how this can, can go wrong. I, I love to study apologetics. Uh, apologetics is the, kind of the science and uh, background of understanding the reasons for our faith. I love to study this, and kind of a subcategory of apologetics is studying worldviews. You can begin to catalog different worldviews. It's really helpful, right? Um, but here's the thing. I, I just have a piece of advice for you. It can be really helpful to study apologetics, really helpful to study worldview, but nobody fits those categories perfectly. Nobody does. Like when you start talking to somebody and they're like, well, I believe this and this. And you're like cataloging them like, oh, well, you have this worldview and I know how to defeat you. I'm going to pull out my sword and right. Like nobody's consistent. Nobody really believes all the elements of a consistent worldview. Everybody's like broken pieces and we've mashed together different things. So take time to listen to people. Take them seriously. If you think they're being inconsistent, you can lovingly show that to them, right? But listen first. And I think that's what we see Jesus doing here. So we want to aim for the heart. We want to aim for the heart by asking more than telling, like Schaefer's 55 minute versus five minutes. Um, aim for the heart by focusing on action more than theory. Um, Jesus is bringing it down to doing justice, doing love, tangibly showing compassion instead of getting lost in these debates about theology and aim for the heart by engaging the imagination. He's telling stories again. We can't write parables. Only Jesus can do that. Um, but one of the ways I do this is I encourage people that are kind of caught up in the details and problems they might have with the Bible. I'm like, yeah, but have you read the Gospels? Like, have you read the stories of Jesus? Have you, have you looked Jesus in the eye through, through the first eyewitness accounts? Uh, and kind of redirecting people back to the stories of the Gospels, but also talking to people about movies and music and things that they love. It helps us to understand their heart. Okay, the last point is the legalist's burden. The legalist's burden. He has a burden to fulfill. We all have a burden that we're trying to carry, especially if we're legalists. We have this kind of legal burden we're trying to fulfill. So Jesus then, verse 36, um, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? It's beautiful. He's, he's turned it around on him, right? This guy was like, okay, which, which neighbors do I need to love? Like, is it three or four or five? You know, he's trying to like limit the scope because of course none of us can perfectly love God and people everywhere all the time. He already knows that. So that can't be the fulfillment because he has this assumption with his wrong equation that God gives a fulfillment uh, or a requirement that can be fulfilled, right? Here are my legal requirements. And this is what legalists often do. We, we shrink it down. We shrink down God's requirements 
to something that we can pull off. So then we can say, look, I won, right? It's like grading on a curve. And so Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So he flipped around the question of who's my neighbor to which one was neighborly? Which one showed love? Because that's what this is about. Are you going to show love? Are you going to have compassion? Which one was a neighbor? Verse 37, the legalist said, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan out loud. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go do it. Jesus has just given a story of impossible compassion. He just gave a story. He's like, ah, okay, this guy thinks he can save himself. I'll tell him a story that he can't argue with that'll show him he cannot save himself. It's one of the most loving things to do to show us how we can't save ourselves. How whatever our functional savior is, is actually something that will enslave us. Only Jesus is the savior that sets us free. And so Jesus is showing him this, and that's, that's part of our job with our friends. Again, to do that graciously and lovingly and patiently. It's part of what we have to discover every day in our own faith journey. Jesus, I can't, I can't save myself. I know I'm going to try to save myself again today. Will you show me how good you are? Will you, will you show me that my bank account's not going to save me today? That my planning's not going to save me? That my perfect family photos are not going to save me? that making people happy is not going to save me, that this job is not going to save me. Jesus, will you show me that you're the only one that can save me today? And we have to walk through this same burden every day. I grabbed a picture of an arrow with a bullseye. Um, the bullseye analogy is helpful because this is the kind of language that is used in Romans 3.23 about sin, that, that sin is basically falling short of the bullseye. Um, sin is anything less than perfection. And even that's not a fair analogy because some of you are probably good with bow and arrow and you're like, okay, I got this. I can save myself, right? Right, it's not, it's just, you know, a, a pale in comparison to the reality of the perfect bullseye of loving everyone all the time, everywhere you go, no matter what, even in the face of danger and risk. That, that's the perfect holiness of God. It's perfect sacrificial love. That's the bullseye. So Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So sin, the word is often used in archery when you miss a mark. That's what sin means, right? And then we've taken that into our theological language, and it means missing the perfect glory of God. None of us are glorious. None of us are perfect like God. None of us love everyone all the time, everywhere we go. So that's the near application of this passage. Like that's the first reason this passage is taught, is Jesus helping this guy think that thinks he can save himself. He's helping him to realize he can't save himself. And what's the, the far application? What's the secondary application? Well, the secondary application is how it's been used for the rest of Western culture and the rest of our history as an example of love. It's also that. It is also an example of love. It's also a go and do likewise. But we can't miss that Jesus is first showing this guy that he can't go and do likewise. And so this is part of what we wrestle with, with Jesus. Like, Jesus, this is unfair. You, you can't give me an impossible standard. And Jesus is like, well, I, I met it for you. I met the impossible standard for you. So salvation by faith is trusting Jesus, the one who went and did likewise on our behalf. As First John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. We trust his love 
And then we begin to love other people. And again, that's the order that is so important in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It's like you can't, you can't save yourself. It's not by your works. It's by grace. It's by faith in Jesus, by what he did. But then there's works to do, right? There, there's go and do likewise that he expects of us. So this is this beautiful, elevated picture of what love really looks like. The burden has been met by Jesus. We accept that he's met the burden for us. And then that acceptance transforms our heart so that we now have the strength to go and want to do likewise. It's a paradox, right? Because legalists will say, oh, well, if Jesus met the burden for you, you're not going to try. Go ahead and test him. Trust him. If you see Jesus as more beautiful than anything in the world, as your only hope, you can't help but follow him around and want to do what he says. And that's... That's what Jesus is showing us in this story. And the next story is then the Mary and Martha story. We're going to bump that one until later in our set of stories. But the Mary and Martha story is a great follow-up to this, right? Because Jesus is like, hey, just sitting at my feet. That's where it's at. Just focusing on me. That's where it's at. Are you and I willing to focus on Jesus? Trust him. If we do, then then we'll start loving people. And we'll start doing the law. We'll actually start doing what's right because he loved us first. Okay, so near application, repent. Turn from our false salvation. Far application, once we've trusted in Jesus, actually start loving other people. Start doing these good and beautiful things. So we'll wrap up here. Conclusion, I think the most important uh, character thing to understand here is that we're actually uh, the victim in the story. We're actually the victim because of other people's sin against us, but because of our own sin that we have to own up to, we're beaten up, left half dead, abandoned on the side of the road. Jesus is the one who doesn't walk on the far side away from us and keep his distance. Jesus is the one that comes into our brokenness. He gets in the mess with us. And the the full story of, of the Gospel of Luke where this thing ends is Jesus is the one who's beat up, who's stripped, who's left for dead for us. He gives himself as the perfect sacrifice to take our sin and to give us life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you loved us. You didn't just keep an abstract legal code, but you kept the perfect legal requirements of sacrificial love, of glory. Thank you that you loved us first. Help us to love others as we respond to your grace. Teach us to follow you because you're good, because we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.